From Dwell Magazine, this is Raw Materials Three Ways, and I'm Dan McGinn. I'm an architect and writer, but for RM3, consider me your guide to the fascinating and surprisingly dramatic world where materials and humans intersect. A few weeks ago, I was running through the rolling hills of Loose Park in Kansas City, and there was nobody else around. It was too hot. Cutting through a stand of white pine trees, I stepped on a tennis ball-sized rock. My foot bone snapped, and I crashed to the ground. The park was strangely silent. No people, no cars, no planes overhead. Nobody saw me fall. It was just me on a bed of pine needles, rapidly breathing, pulse racing, sweat dripping. For about a minute, I had a primal experience of the present, where the rhythms of my body's systems eclipsed out the pain in my foot and the noise in my conscious mind. I will never forget the sharp smell of pine resin and the silent dance of light across my suddenly strange-looking legs. I've had these experiences before. My wife refers to them as my animal moments. About 25 years ago, I had an animal moment during a lunar eclipse. Up to that point, to be honest, I was a little underwhelmed by the battle-scarred circle in the night sky that is our moon. But during the eclipse, I experienced the moon for what it really is, a stone ball magically floating in the sky, perilously close to our own stone ball. A transcendent sense of strangeness and wonder washed over me, 90% curiosity, 10% raw fear. I felt a short circuit of sorts, back to some distant Neolithic ancestor, similarly fascinated, similarly scared, similarly speechless. Sometimes animal moments can be triggered by a building or a work of art. About 10 years after the eclipse, I was in Rome to see the Pantheon. For an architect, visiting this 2,000-year-old concrete building with its domed roof and open-air oculus at the top is a rite of passage. But when I finally arrived there, late in the afternoon on my first day in Rome, it was closed for a holiday. I was destroyed. There would be no ancient secrets of proportion and scale revealed to me on this day. No covenant with the gods of architecture. Standing outside, I did a couple quick sketches as the light faded around me, but my heart wasn't in it. As I got ready to head back to my hotel, I walked over to the 20-foot-tall bronze gates that stood between me and the sacred space I had planned on visiting. They still didn't budge, but I was surprised to see the gap between them was big enough to peek through. 95% of my view was restricted, but in the remaining 5%, I could see the shaded gray form of the dome inside, with the hole at the top framing a circle of cobalt blue sky. As my eyes slowly attuned to the light inside, I was no longer disappointed at the easily accessible thing I'd been denied. I was elated at the fresh viewpoint I'd been granted. I was filled with wonder at what I saw. The Pantheon, it was wonderful. In all three of these instances, an unexpected shift in light played a role in taking me out of myself for a few precious animal minutes. Good designers learn from transcendent sensory experiences like these. In fact, it's the purposeful manipulation of light that makes the individuals in this episode so successful. Today on RM3, we'll look at how light can be used as a material, refined and crafted just like concrete, steel, or wood, to create environments that take us beyond the everyday. My name is Joan Serrano. I'm a design principal at HGA Architects in Minneapolis, and I work on cultural and sacred projects. 
Architect Joan Serrano is driven by the idea that architecture has the power to create profound experiences. The vision that drives her work at HGA stems from her formative years in Milan. Growing up in Italy had a profound impact on me. The architecture, the culture, the whole place, you know, definitely got into my DNA. You know, medieval, church design, all the way up through Gothic, Renaissance, Baroque. These churches are an amazing study, not only in, in light and, and darkness, but also art. I think I've always been drawn to the design of sacred spaces. My first studio project at Notre Dame was to design your own tombstone. You know, some people would say that's a very strange uh, first assignment for, you know, a freshman <laughs> college student. But I loved thinking about, you know, this notion of memory, commemorating, you know, a life, this idea of, of thinking about transcendent kind of experiences. You know, trying to address in architecture some of these larger questions or issues that we all think about in life. And so I've always been interested in the sacred and ideas around spirituality. Historically, some of the greatest architecture in the world throughout time has always been sacred space. You know, for many, the, the charge of, of designing a sacred space is to design beautiful space. Beauty and the sense of transcendence are kind of the, the primary goals or, or ideas influencing the design. How do you think light contributes to the design of transcendent space? Light, uh, historically throughout time, has always been critical to creating this idea of transcendent space. If you think about the association that light has always had to God or to a higher power, from the earliest places of worship, light has always been used to symbolize the spiritual, the unknown, um, or God. And so architects have many different ways to express those notions, from direct light to indirect light, to light that evokes a certain level of mystery. I think a lot of that, too, is the juxtaposition between light and dark. You know, that contrast is really critical to create that effect. If you're, it's sunny outside and you go into a really dark space, it takes you a while for your eyes to adjust, and then you gradually start discovering things. And so it's this journey, this process of discovery that's really pretty exciting. Gothic cathedrals are a good example of that too. You go out from, from a sunny piazza into these dark, very dark, kind of cool spaces, and then gradually, you know, some of the architecture and the art reveals itself, you know, once your eyes adjust to it. So it's that yin-yang, it's that constant duality between opposing objects that create a really powerful whole. Do you think of light more as a material or kind of as a tool of sorts to manipulate other materials? That's a really good question. I would probably say both, because I think light can be used in a lot of different ways, sometimes as a tool, sometimes as a material. I think it can be used both ways. We use light uh, to really set the, the tone or the mood or the feel of the space. 
I think that's one of the most effective things you can, can do with light. In 2011, Jones Studio at HGA finished a mausoleum for the Lakewood Cemetery in Minneapolis. The cemetery is a treasured landmark comprising 250 acres of well-kept grounds. Jones' design team cited the mausoleum with great respect, creating a structure built of dark gray granite, punctured in key areas with apertures that capture light in different ways, including from above through clear story windows and skylights. While some of the structure stands above ground, much of it is built into the earth, allowing for a direct interaction with nature. It's a place of energy and calm, of gravity and lightness, a contemplative place to reflect on the lives of loved ones and our own lives. Mausoleums are often imbued by a sense of darkness and gloom. This one's all about the light. For Lakewood Mausoleum, we thought about light in several different ways. One, if you think about the windows or the fenestration inside the building, the light is coming directly in. It's also framing views of the historic cemetery, the historic chapel. The light is amplifying those views and those connections directly to the cemetery. Um, we also used light in an indirect way through a series of clear stories that as you're moving down into the burial rooms, you can't see those clear story windows. All you see is the light reflected on some plaster uh, vaults in the ceiling. So it looks a little bit more mysterious and moody as you're moving down into those sacred spaces. But then when you actually are going back up towards the exit to leave the mausoleum, you can actually look outside through those clear story windows and reconnect back to your life and to the world around you. So, you know, in one way, the clear stories were working to create a more sacred mood as you're moving down and as you move up. The light is being used to, to direct you to the outside. It seems like a project where you were really exploring this idea of duality that you talk about quite a bit between lightness and darkness, the spiritual and the earthbound. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how that idea of duality really just helps this project resonate with visitors. Well, I think a good example of that is the, the passageway that links all the crypt and columbarium rooms together. It's long. It's about 180 foot long. And, you know, we knew we had to modulate that corridor um, in such a way that provided some interest for people walking down to visit the burial rooms. So what we did was instead of trying to modulate the space with materials, we modulated it with this combination of light and dark. So as you're moving down, some of the corridor is illuminated by windows that you can't see. They're beyond your field of vision, so they're kind of light-filled. And then as you keep moving down, then you go into passage of dark. So much like a Gothic cathedral with columns that are kind of rhythmically going down the space, um, we're doing it with light. We're not doing it with structure, we're doing it with light. So there's this rhythm of light and dark, light and dark, light and dark, as you're moving down this 180-foot corridor. As 
Joan and I wrapped up our conversation about the Lakewood Mausoleum, we found ourselves talking about how artists and architects have worked with light and darkness through the centuries, creating works that resonate with mystery and intimacy. Going to school at Notre Dame and obviously living in Italy, one of my favorite artists was Caravaggio. And Caravaggio was kind of a master of that, the notion of chiaroscuro, which, you know, again, that juxtaposition of light and dark how light can be used in very dramatic ways surrounded by darkness or shadow to not only highlight, you know, the thing that you want to focus, but also elevate it in such a way that, you know, makes it truly transcendent. Because the light is very, you know, it's very focused. And then generally there's a lot of darkness and moodiness around that light. You know, you're drawn into those paintings by the light but when you're within it, it's a very intimate environment. What I'm always struck by in a Gothic cathedral is the sense of intimacy, which seems like it would be the exact opposite because of the scale of a Gothic cathedral. But if you think about the degree of darkness, the darkness is creating that sense of intimacy, even though it's a vast space. So scale and the size of spaces have little to do with your sense of intimacy. In my opinion, it has more to do with light. Mexico City is about 2,000 miles south of Minneapolis. The contrast between a contemplative space of remembrance in the Minnesota landscape and a bustling urban center of 9 million people is like Chiaroscuro, night and day. My name is Miguel Angel Aragonés. I am from Mexico City. Miguel Aragonés practices architecture around the world, but he calls Mexico City home. Like Joan Serrano, he appreciates the power of juxtaposing different kinds of experiences to create architecture that defies expectations and amplifies a personal connection to a space. His house designs in Mexico City reflect this design philosophy. What you are looking inside is something that creates uh, calm, something that creates uh, peace, something that creates uh, a different environment. And at the end, everybody is looking for beauty and everybody is looking for a space that express some kind of, okay, uh, this is for you and this is a possibility to live inside with mainly with, with peace and with calm and with, and with beauty. Miguel believes that a house's personality, like that of its occupants, isn't static. It can shift from day to night and from season to season. A house he recently completed called Rombo 4 illustrates this concept. Sited on a roughly triangular plot of land in Mexico City, it's organized as a series of rectilinear volumes, each defined by white walls. None of the rooms have set orientations or views, they are all talking with each other, dissolving into each other just enough to disrupt the purity of their geometric forms. The house reminds me of the cocktail party and breakfast at Tiffany's. It's a place of architectural dialogue, a wild puzzle box of glimpses and secrets where the unexpected is expected. And like a cocktail party, the tone shifts as the hours pass. In the architecture, in, in my opinion, the light is almost everything. Light and time, and I think the, the concept of the, of the time depends on the light and the different possibilities of the light inside uh, and how the light moves into the space, in my opinion, that is the, the most important dialogue 
that dialogue in Spanish we say recorrido, no? And the recorrido is the 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 real thing about the the architecture is how the character of each space can dialogue between uh, each each of them and recreate the total thing of the of the spaces the total the total thing of the of the building fundamental to miguel's design philosophy is his passion for color which in turn is tied to his passion for light he sees the 24 hours of a day as a continuous poem of color and space light and dark Refinements in colored LED lighting technology has allowed him to maintain this continuity. Sometimes you can see the white like a very bright yellow. At the end of the day, in the sunset, you can see that that blue in the in the in the walls, painted from the sky or paint, painted from the absence of the sun. You will not see. In any moment, some color that will be repeating. It's always changing, it's always moving, it's always depending about the, the spirit of the day or, or the mood of the day. In my opinion, the nature of the, of the day is it's a kind of a white. No? You can see a white box changing and moving depending the sun. But during the night, the night is black, absolutely black. And you can turn and you can play uh, with the with the colors and you can create your own your own sun inside and you can disturb the color and you can create the color that you whatever you want uh, during the night and during the day this is something that is absolutely opposite never never try to imitate the sun during the night never the house almost seems to have two personalities, two very related personalities, daytime and nighttime. Was that part of your design concept? Yes, yes, I think it's part of the of the concept. I, I think it's like, a, it's like a person. We are not always the same person. It depends, it depends when and it depends the moment and the house is exactly the same. Whereas Joan Serrano found inspiration in the paintings of Caravaggio, Miguel found something essential in the work of Gunther Gerza, a Mexican artist who was active from the 1930s through the 1960s. His paintings, smoky blocks of muted color, layered to create a sense of depth, remind me of buildings and alleys, abstractly sketched out from above. They look like drawings Mark Rothko might make, if Mark Rothko were a city planner. If you look at images of Miguel's architecture and Gerza's paintings side by side, you can definitely see the connection. If you see the 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 work of Gunter Gerzo, it was something very with a huge huge mystery inside. You feel like the the painting ha- has the light from the back part of the of the painting always, and it was absolutely different and it was absolutely beautiful for me. And I did an homage, and I did different uh, walls, and always illuminating uh, with with glass. But the glass was uh, hidden. You never see the glass. You only see the the reflection of the light that crossed the glass, and the light explodes and create an atmosphere 
very powerful atmosphere because the light was like broken and it was like uh, something like gas, you know. When I discovered the possibility of the glass and how the glass changed absolutely the, the, the color of the light and reflect everything and create that, that light uh, with atmosphere, it's a kind like uh, the explosion of the color, you know? The, the color is not in, on the back, the color is uh, on the space, and it is absolutely distinct. For me, first, first of all, is, is the light. I've come to think of Rombo 4 as almost a mixed media work of art as much as a house. Within the beautiful noise of Mexico City, Miguel Aragonés tapped into the spirit of Cuba's painting, sculpture, poetry, and set design. It's not surprising then that music comes into play as a vital inspiration. The house is an instrument of light and color, actively tuned and played by the occupants over the course of a day. The relation between music and architecture is, uh, for me, is almost the same. If, if you listen some piece from Kid Jarrett, for, for example, or Wim Mertens, uh, or Händel, or Bach, or Bob Dylan, how they can create with silence, how they can build with, with, with sound. And that dialogue, that, how they are uh, creating the space with, with that dialogue, sound, silence, and how they compose with, with that episodes, that continuity. It's exactly the same with the, with the architecture. How you can uh, build with, with, with the darkness, how you can build with some uh, black space, how you can build with something that is uh, absolutely, what, what is the next? It's a very uh, open space with, with sound. Uh, in my opinion, th that is the, the real problem of the architecture, how you can create dialogues, how you can create music with spaces. So we're Son for Son, we're a collaboration, um, arts collaboration, Tristan Surtees and Charles Blanc. Founded in 2001, the artist duo known as Sans Fasan has created experiential art that cultivates wonder. Their origin story begins in Glasgow with Charles, who is studying architecture, moving into the same apartment as Tristan's girlfriend. The story encapsulates their spirit, equal measures charming and subversive, thoughtful and deadpan funny. Tristan, who is trained as an artist, tells the tale. The reason we got to know each other is because Charles is incredibly handsome. And I didn't like the idea of a handsome Frenchman moving in with my girlfriend's apartment. So I used to hang around at breakfast time an awful lot. And it just, it just seemed we had this, we were interested in exactly the same thing from very different points of view. The story of how we became Sonfasan is, is not quite as um, carefully thought through or romantic as what it might seem. So Sonfasan just means, the literal translation as Charles explained to me is without unnecessary social ceremony. Tristan and Charles are fascinated by their surroundings and driven to understand why this is so. To investigate ties between people and place, they stage perception-shifting experiences that range from drive-in film screenings of the sea, to giant inflatable You Are Here arrows, to actor retellings of personal memories. 
Their work isn't traditional in the sense of a formal sculpture or a public square. Far from it. To me, at least, they are more like really talented carnival hucksters, tempting us to interact with our surroundings through thoughtful interventions that reframe what we thought we knew. It's a process that requires a lot of patience. The first thing we try to do is observe a place. I think it can be quite frustrating for people who work with us in that they'll want to know what we want to do and we don't know until we start. Um, so actually trying to understand the conditions of a certain location or situation, be that historical, social, geographic, and from that trying to unpicking of of that situation, it sort of emerges what the right thing to do is. And I, I suppose also I, I think um, one of the responsibilities of an artist is to sort of push against uh, a brief and not in a confrontational way but to kind of question and interrogate it Sans Fasson was responsible for providing me with one of the top 10 animal moments in my life one of those moments when an unexpected deviation from what was expected sparked a transcendent experience of awareness and wonder this was in Kansas City in 2010 at an installation they brought to town called Limelight Saturday Night. By the time I experienced it, they had been refining the idea for five years, adapting it to different cities. The first iteration was in Glasgow, as part of the first Radiance Festival. So often light festivals are, you know, objects of art made in light, placed in a city. Our fascination was well, was the other way around, as kind of what is a city and its existing light, and how can we sort of shift that slightly to create a different relationship between people and that situation so we, we boiled it down to the really simplest element which was replacing two existing street lights um, next to each other one each with a, a spotlight like um, like you'd find on a stage and directing the spotlight to the same spot on the ground and we were very clear in our mind that what we didn't want to do was kind of have a notice up next to it saying this is an artwork please do something we just wanted people to happen upon it so it felt almost accidental almost like the lights have been blown round that way um, or it was some sort of security thing. That The ambiguity was really important. Um, we also turned off the streetlights next to it on either side if we could and then we left it. And it was really an experiment in public space. In the first instance, we'd, we didn't know if it would work and that, that was kind of part of the joy and part of the fear when someone's asked you to do a project. People may have ignored it completely but what happened almost instantly is people would see it and if someone else was close to them, if they were with somebody or there was someone on the other side of the street, they'd do something. Start interacting with one another through this spotlight on the floor. And they may just walk through and click their heels. They may do a little dance. They may just stand and pose. It became really just a, uh, an invitation to think about their relationship to public space through light and apparently through existing light in the city. I mean, it seems so simple, but it's not. What is it about such a simple move that causes people to sort of tap into some deep expression that they weren't planning on tapping into before they happened onto it? Yeah, I think it's partly the such a recognizable symbol of stage and also the the accidental aspect of that happening in a public space. The idea of being accidental was quite important in the way that if it was 
purposefully a place for people to perform they probably wouldn't perform so the fact that they feel like using what's there temporally in a you're not supposed to therefore you do it it's kind of the red button don't press it i think there's partly the aspect and even the people who don't necessarily do anything to it would walk around it the light almost become palpable becomes a a physical space also the space hasn't changed and it's just a difference between shade and dark people would walk around good get off the pavement walk around to not be in the spotlight in a way when once it's in place we've given it over it no longer belongs to us and all manner of thing take place i don't think i've ever done a project where every single night you come away with a big smile on your face uh, just seeing how little you need to do in public space how how our kind of sterilized public spaces are today and how little it takes to shift those into a into something completely different a place of interaction connection even if it's just through a look or a smile between two strangers when i experienced it in kansas city i thought i knew what it was going to be like when i ventured out into the limelight and it was different than what actually happened. It was kind of better. As an architect, sometimes you'll go into a church or a place that a designer or architect or someone running the place has a sense of understanding how the human eye works. So you might go into a dark place and it might take, I don't know, 45 seconds for your eye to adjust. So it's basically, in that case, 45 seconds or so, which is a perfect amount of time, like for awareness to be raised. And in that 45 seconds, sort of the space is revealed to you and there's a sense of revelation. In limelight, it was almost the opposite where once you're in the light, I noticed that there's an amount of time where the light was hitting me directly. The rest of the world kind of went away for a few seconds. I don't know how to describe it other than I felt hilariously special, very much in the moment and like, this is fun and I will never forget this moment. That's really lovely. The very simple joys of being in a particular moment is is what I think we try to do. Is that's the joy I think in making work in the public realm is if you can if you can hit that spot within somebody else that that thing becomes theirs and and it feels um, magical and and um, personal. Then then I think we've kind of done what we were intending to do, and I think that's partly where limelight comes from is. How can you do the littlest to do the most without changing the qualities of somewhere, but just adding one ingredient to bring a different way of looking at something that's familiar? So it's not about us, it's about it. I think a lot of that is partly the visual culture we live in, but also there's a, a social construct of that you get into as you grow up, and that obviously kids don't have the same restraints and are able to tap into that pleasure of the everyday discovery and it's how do you kind of somehow give a permission space for people to be allowed to discover or re-enjoy those everyday moments or special places that might appear very mundane (laughs) 
Another expectation-altering work by Tristan and Charles is Sunset Sunrise, which they first installed in 2014 at a bus station in Hamm, Germany, as part of a light festival. It consists of two vigorously active split-flap signs, similar to what you might have seen in a train station a few decades ago. As you experience it, one sign displays the name of a town where the sun is setting at the moment, and the other displays the name of a town where it is rising. The effect, which traces the two borderlines between night and day as they race across the globe at a thousand miles an hour, is mesmerizing. That actually came from not, not being in the country where, um, where my family is. It's something we all contemplate is the, you know, when we have loved ones somewhere else and you think, huh, they're just getting up. Or it's, they're going to bed now, it's, it'll be going dark and I'm, I'm just having my lunch. As we live in a kind of more connected world, um, there was something quite just uh, the appetite of connecting to the scale and grandeur of, of a planet. Both the closeness of those things that you feel, but the distance in physicality was really where sun, uh, sunset sunrise came from. Again, it's, it's just a very simple idea, but when you stand between those two split flap displays and each each minute a new city where the sun is uh, coming up comes on one and where the sun is going down appears on the other, it positions you in the heart of the grandeur of the planet and the, the light appearing and disappearing around the world. Stand between those signs moving and these just names moving, it almost starts to get a vertigo of the whole movement of the planet. It's a bit like you're removed from the planet and it's moving under your feet somehow. Mm. There's a very strange physical sensation just by associating these words with those places and having that constant movement. I think that's what most of our projects are about. It's a realization somehow or a feeling that we've come to through some experience and we want to create a way in which someone else can have that feeling too, but their own, and it might be completely different, but trusting in the, the essence of that particular element or situation that someone will connect with that feeling within inside themselves. That's kind of where Sunrise Sunset sits for us in a, in a way is that the, it's talking as much about the absence of light as it is about the presence of it. And in this case, as a work, it had no light involved, but the, it was completely talking about our relationship to light and how we live. Okay, flash back with me to that animal moment I had in Kansas City at the beginning of the episode. My misstep in Loose Park resulted in a trip to the emergency room and an x-ray of my foot, which confirmed that the snap I heard before I fell was indeed a bone snapping and not a stick in the grass. While I shivered in my running shorts in the exuberantly air-conditioned exam room, the doctor pointed out the gray line of the fracture in the backlit image. Her words gradually started to fade into background noise as I realized I was looking at my own skeleton, my own bones, rendered with a special type of light that existed outside of the visible spectrum, light we cannot see. On the way out of the room, strapped into an enormous gray walking boot, I took a quick picture of the x-ray with my iPhone. I've looked at this picture a couple dozen times in the past month. There it is, my secret animal architecture, hidden beneath the rest of me, recorded in unseen light at the tail end of a particularly hot July day in 2019. When I give my x-ray a peek during a boring meeting at work or while I'm waiting in line at the coffee shop, 
I'm reminded that light is a material with the unique power to take us beyond ourselves. I'm there in the meeting or in line, but I'm also there in the park, on the ground, and there I can smell pine, and through the trees I can see the sun. RM3 is a podcast by Dwell Media, your guide to living with good design. Jenny Shia produces the show for Dwell, and Laura Spencer is our editor and producer here in Kansas City, and I'm your host, Dan McGinn. Our theme music is by Slog Ralden. Thanks to Joan Serrano, Miguel Aragonis, Charles Blanc, and Tristan Surtees for contributing to Light Three Ways. Thanks to our tape singers, Lori Stern, Isabel cadenas Kenyon, and Kiefer Dallison. Check out dwell.com slash podcast to learn more and see images of what we covered today. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Dwell Magazine on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to get your daily design fix. 